Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! That's what Santa says. What? You need to eat all those latkes? That's what Hanukkah Harry says. Hanukkah Harry? Yes, it's December, and the holiday season is upon us. Oh, what do you want for Hanukkah, Rob? Well, Kevin, I want more folks to contribute to our Patreon. What do you want for Christmas, buddy? I was going to see the Angel cast recording, but um, I guess I'll see the exact same thing, Rob. How dare you? You'll never get it. Maybe someone out there will get us that gift. How would they do that, Kevin? Well, our generous holiday elves should head on over to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And then search for Behind the Curtain Broadway's Living Legends. And then you can set up a monthly donation. Even a dollar a month helps us out. Your contributions help Help us continue doing what we are doing. We are self-funded, so we need your help. Have another PBS tote bag. And for Hanukkah, feel free to contribute eight times a month. Okay, Rob, now you're pushing it. That's, okay, you're right. I get right. it. I see what you did there. Okay, have a safe, healthy, and happy holidays, and head over to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and leave a nice little gift for your two Broadway-loving elves. <laughs> you liked that line, didn't I you? I did, actually. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to our, all of our episodes, old and new, on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Broadway World, the Stage Network, and the Broadway Podcast Network. Ooh. Uh, today's guest has worn many hats. Composer, lyricist, book writer, author, producer, and so many more. His career started in the golden age of the American musical theater and continues right up to today. His works include Bajor, Golden Rainbow, Broadway Follies, Body Shop, Langston in Harlem, My Shining Hour, Dig Lenny Bruce, Go Fly a Kite, and the film, Merchant and Ivory film, The Wild Party, Countless Industrials, Compositions for Barbara Streisand, The Temptations, Della Reese, and his most iconic song, I've Gotta Be Me, which has been sung and recorded by Sammy Davis Jr., Michael Jackson, and Tony Bennett. He's also author of the very popular detective Jericho Mystery. Series. I have read all of these books, and they're fantastic. <laughs> if you like a mystery, you're going to go buy them. Yes, please. Tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Richard Rogers, Oscar Hammerstein, Gene Kelly, Johnny Mercer, Cheetah Rivera, Larry Gelbart, Stephen Eady, and so many more. Here is the one and only Walter Marks. Hey, Walter. How are you doing, guys? Oh, we're so doing? happy to be here with you. I want you to know this is my first podcast. Then we'll so, when as you speak of us, as I, I know am you will. public speaking, <laughs> I Be will kind. do my best. <laughs> You're going to do great. It's going it, to. It's Walter is such a charming storyteller. Yeah. That uh, I, I think it's going to be a okay. And I think you're going to be. You've fine. known Robert. Uh, Robert, you've known Walter, and you've you've often told me about the meetings you've had and the stories that you've told. And I keep saying, I, we got to get Walter. We got to get Walter. We got to get Walter. So, I have been I have been very yeah. lucky. I'm going to brag about Walter for a hot second, if I may. Um, so I we did at 54 below a couple years ago we did the 50th anniversary of golden rainbow yeah um which we were so excited about and walter and i got to work together on it walter actually wrote some new lyrics for one of the songs um debbie gravitt was in it uh steve your favorite i love it steve lawrence's son david lawrence was in it um and I, I wanted to ask you about that night because when we do these shows at 54 Below, they're always well attended, yeah. usually. But this was like a rock concert. This was like an absolute rock concert because you looked out into the audience and sitting there was Jason Robert Brown and Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman and Lucy Arnaz and Marilyn May and all of these huge people in the industry and all because they love, love, love Golden Rainbow. What was that night like for you to return to the show 50 years later and see so much love for it? 
Well, it was certainly a blast from the past, I'm yeah. sure. Um, uh, it was amazing because, uh, I mean, 50 years, that's half a century, yeah. which makes me it's older insane. than I like to admit. <laughs> Walter's a hip cat. Yes, he, of course. He's still young. Um, but it was, um, it was uh, there was stuff that I had forgotten mm. because it's so long ago. Oh, that was another, yeah, I remember that. Mm -hmm. And then I had uh, wonderful memories of... of uh, Steve and Edie and, and what they were like. I mean, at the time that we did the show, they were uh, probably one of the most important and famous singers uh, of the decade. Yeah. yeah. Um, somewhat un underrated because rock and roll was coming up in the 60s. So they were, they were kind of getting phased out in yeah. a certain way. Uh, but uh, when I found out that they were willing to do the show. I was. I'm any songwriter would have been thrilled to think. Oh my God, Edie's going to sing this, and Steve is going to sing this, and um, so all those memories came came flooding back. And uh, one of the great things was that Steve, uh, when when we first talked about doing the show, uh, I said to Rob Schneider, "Well, who's going to play Steve?" Right. And he said, "Steve's son." <laughs> I said, "Steve's son, yeah." David, I said, David? He said, yeah, who was like a Pisher kid when I first <laughs> met him. Um, and uh, he said, well, he sings just like Steve, which he does. Yeah. So um, one of the treats was, was meeting David Lawrence because we shared a lot of memories uh, from the Beresford uh, apartments where they lived at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, I mean, what a rare experience to have the son of a star play the star. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that gave it an extra dimension. And um, then there was one uh, new lyric that I wrote. Uh, there's a, was a Vegas hotel owner in the show. Um, but Vegas was very different uh, 50 years ago. <laughs> and I thought that... Uh, if we could make him sound like Donald Trump, that would give it a different edge. Uh, so I wrote it as though the guy were Donald Trump. Love it. Uh, you know, with all the ego, which is what the character was. It wasn't out of character. It just had little subtle hints about who the character was. So that was, that gave me a chance to revisit the show, which is, was always fun. It hasn't been done. Uh, it, it hasn't been done in, in stock or um, too much. It's such a fun show, too. I mean, you, you said you were listening to it this morning. Or yes. You, yeah. Yeah. The <laughs> score is incredible. I, actually, that was one of my questions for you. Was because it was so associated with Steve and Edie. Do you think that's the reason why people didn't really pick it up afterwards? They thought, well, it's a Steve and Edie show. So. I think that had a lot to do with it. Um, I mean, you, you needed to have two stars of a kind of the same uh, energy and yeah. connection. Um, so uh, that's probably the reason. But the other reason is that there is no reason. I mean, part <laughs> of musical theater is there's no reason for anything. Exactly. Things work or they don't work. Um, and uh, it's, it's, that's the, the beauty of it. But to be in the field is difficult because you you really can't predict how things are going to work or not work. Yeah. Uh, so I, the answer is I really don't know. And I, it would be lovely if the two stars <laughs> yeah. decided they wanted to do it.
Yeah, I, I hope it comes back at some point because the score is absolutely fantastic. And, it was, and, and we did it at 54. It was so nice to revisit it because I think a lot of people realized how much the show can stand on its own without oh, yeah. Stephen Eady being and, associated with it. And how many people we interview that it's like their gateway into musical. They lo- it was their, what got them yeah. interested in theater. Well, that, that totally amazed me. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't prepared for that kind of reaction. Uh, that, that so many people came up to me and said, "Oh, I saw it in Philadelphia," right. um, and and um, they, they really loved it. Uh, so it was it was it made me feel good, good. <laughs> as it should. Uh, yeah, no, as it should. Um, what's interesting, also, I think about Golden Rainbow is um, at a time like you said when rock music was taking over, a lot of show tunes were not hitting the pop charts anymore, and then all of a sudden, one of the last to do so is "I've Got to Be Me." Yes, from yeah. from Golden Rainbow. How did I've Got to Be Me come to fruition? Well, um, it's, it's a kind of um, one of these strange stories that uh, doesn't make a lot of sense, but uh, I got a... Steve and Edie were signed to do the show, and I was in New York, and they, I got a call from Edie. And she said, you know, Steve and I are down in Hollywood, Florida at the Diplomat Hotel, and uh, why don't you come down and see our act? You know, I've seen it. You've seen it before, but we're doing a lot of new stuff. And also, we, we'd like to talk to you about the score. And I'm like, oh, boy, <laughs> What's gonna, what is this all about? So, so I flew down there, saw the act, and it was quite wonderful. And afterwards, I went back to their dressing room and started ch- chatting about the show. And, and uh, Edie said, um, the, one of the biggest songs of the day was The Impossible Dream. And we both feel like Steve should have a song like an impossible dream. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I said, well, th- but it's not, you know, it's not Don Quixote. How, yeah. You know, and they said, well, um, we, we've got you an apartment next door and uh, in, in an apartment building. Uh, so we'd like you to go up there and, and there's a piano there. <laughs> and you can um, you come up with something. No pressure. I no, mean, no, no. No. <laughs> So, uh, gulp. So, uh, okay. So I went up to the apartment, and uh, there was a piano. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, and I'm saying, the, you know, to dream the impossible. What? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so um, I started working, and um, I went to, well, I, I went to sleep. And then I got up in the morning and started fiddling around and thinking, and uh, I got nothing. <laughs> so I... And I came to the show the next night, and they said, well, what have you got? I said, oh, I'm working on it. I got some few ideas. I had nothing. And I, I went back to work that night, and I'm thinking, what can, you know, and where's a, a place for this first song? Right. And then uh, it hit me that at the end of the first act, first acts in musicals, which are usually almost always two acts, the first act should end with sort of a cliffhanger, like what's going to happen? What's he going to do? What's she going to do? How, how are they going to handle this? And I thought, well, at the end of the first act, he's got a major decision to make. I'm not going to go into what the decision was, but um, so I thought, well, he's got to decide something. And it's so it's his thought process about how he's going to decide that, that that struck me. And so I was at the piano fly, fitting, uh, playing and fiddling around. And, and, and then I've got to be me as a thought just popped into my head. 
He's got to be. He's got to be true to himself. Mm. Whatever he decides, it's got to be what he really is and believes in what he really wants. So that's what generated uh, the song. And once, once I got the title, I mean, there was there was work to do, but it, no song writes itself. But mm. um, and uh, uh, Ira Gershwin had a, a, a little slogan uh, in his own writing. He said, "A title is vital." Once you've it, prove it. <laughs> so, uh, and I've always uh, remembered that, and it doesn't always apply. But if you get if you get the right title for a song, then you know where you're going. Uh, it doesn't always, in, like in comedy songs, it doesn't work. You got to think about what's the best joke to do sure, here. Sure. But um, once I've got I've got to be me, then I knew what the song was about. And that's that's the toughest part. So um, so I I worked on it practically all night, <laughs> and uh, the next day I, I played it for them, and they loved it. Yeah, uh, what a relief. <laughs> and it it yeah. it was kind of the impossible dream. I mean, it was a big song. Yeah, and uh, and Steve of course recorded it, and the big disappointment was that his his recording didn't didn't really make it. One of the reasons was that he sort of uh, sort of crooned it. I mean, that was his style. Of you course. Know, it was, it was yeah. um, uh, the way he sang. Um, and uh, also, when, when you have a hit song in a show, it helps the show a lot. Like, I don't know if Hello, Dolly would have even been, been such a big hit if Louis Armstrong didn't yeah. say Hello, Dolly. <laughs> Um, and so, unfortunately, the Sammy Davis recording came out after the show, directly. It ran for a year and about a year and three months, and probably in the last two months, the song came out. Oh, okay. So it didn't help the show. Uh, but that's show business. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, how did you find out that Sammy Davis wanted to record it? Or was it just a surprise to you that somebody, you know, called you and said, have you heard the new album? It was... Uh, Total surprise to me. Um, it was recorded by Reprise Records. It was the B side of a single. Huh. It wasn't the A side was an, another kind of dumb song. Uh, and um, in those days, they released singles, single recordings, and so the, it went out and. Uh, Nobody played it because it wasn't very good. And then a disc jockey in San Francisco turned it over and played his recording of I've Gotta Be Me. And that's what created all the excitement initially. So, again, it was dumb luck wow. you know, that somebody said, oh, let's see the other side. This right. one stinks, so let's see what the other <laughs> yeah. one is. And that's the birth of I've Gotta Be Me. That's so cool. And it was recently on, what, a Gillette Razor commercial? Um, no, a doll, Dollar Shave. A oh, Dollar Shave. Yeah, it's been <laughs> it's been uh, on a lot of commercials um, through through the years. And paid a lot of my rent. Yay. Good, good. I'm a member of Dollar Shave, by the way. I'm just, it's not not a product placement. I'm just saying, I like them. <laughs> so you help I like pay the rent even more now that, now that they're using this song. Um, where, now we're going to jump back a little bit. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Manhattan, on the west side of Manhattan. Ooh, a New York boy. Mm -hmm. New York boy, born and bred. 
uh, went to uh, public school, went to the High School of Music and Art. Oh, okay. Uh, which is a great school. And oddly enough, I was an art student, oh. not a music student. Yeah, to get into music and art, you have to s- apply. Right. And if it's art, you have to s- submit a portfolio of your drawings. If it's music, you have to audition. And uh, I just had a lot of drawings and paintings that I did as a kid. And my mother put them together, and I wasn't... I played the piano a little bit, but I wasn't a composer in okay. any way. So I went there as, as an art student, studied art for four years, and went to the Art Students League, and, and uh, was very into, into painting. Uh, but uh, as it kind of went along, I, I got more interested in music. And then when I went to Amherst College, uh, I minored in music. Uh-huh. And I went to... Amherst College because they had a freshman show. Okay, uh, I said, "Oh, well, if I go there, I can maybe I can write a show," and that, which I did. Yeah. And then there was a senior show, and I wrote that. And you know, then I knew I wanted to be a composer. Um, I wasn't I wasn't much of a lyricist. I didn't really think about lyrics, uh, but I couldn't find a lyricist. Right. <laughs> so I started writing. Maybe you. Were you watching a lot of theater uh, when you were growing up? Do you remember your first Broadway show that you saw? Uh, yes, yes. It was Oklahoma. <laughs> you got to see Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Wow, a transformative so. experience? Oh, very much. Oh, I remember sitting up in the balcony. And uh-huh. I, I mean, I can, you know, in, in, I don't know about you guys, but if, in very important shows that I remember, I actually remember where I was sitting. Definitely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. I had a sense that I was, you know, and mm-hmm. yep. uh, it's, it's, it's visceral. Yes. Uh, and my, my parents, I was sitting up in this, probably in the second balcony, but I can remember um, Alfred Drake, you know, walking out on the stage and singing. Oh, what a beautiful morning. And it's, you know, I, I, I can't say I knew then what I wanted to do. I, I was a right. picture kid. But um, I certainly do, do remember it. And uh, so, yes, I grew up. My parents loved the musical theater. Oh, good. And so, um, and I had a wonderful aunt who was a public school teacher and loved to sing and play the piano. <laughs> she, and when I was about 14, she said, come over to my house, and she had these songbooks, the Rogers and Hart songbook, the Rogers and Hammerstein songbook, the Cole Porter, George Gershwin songbook, and every week I would come over once a week, sit down with Aunt Glenna, <laughs> and Aunt Glenna would go through these, all the, and sing me all these songs. Um, she was a teacher, so she had an instinct for <laughs> it, and uh, it was very loving when I think, at the time I thought, you know, this is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but thinking back on this person who was really inculcating my mind yeah. with with the great classics, and so that's that's what I grew up in, yeah. and that's still my my, my great love. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's really really fantastic. You you had no desire to ever be on a stage, did you? You liked creating the songs. Uh, yeah, no, I I didn't want to be. Uh, I mean, in college. Um, I, I, I was I was in Midsummer Night's Dream uh, as a freshman. The reason I was in it was the only one who would wear tights. <laughs> so his legs, Walter. Well, this is, yeah. Well, you know, this is at a time when guys didn't wear tights. Yeah. You know? Right. Uh, so I, I said, "Well, who will wear tights?" I said, oh, "All right, I'll wear it." So I played puck, <laughs> uh, and um, 
I couldn't remember my lines. <laughs> I mean, I just couldn't I memorize lines. I mean, I remember actually improvising Puck <laughs> on the stage. You know, I'd go blank and I'd, I'd start spouting this. You know, it was, it was bizarre. And nobody ever criticized me for it. But, and I, after that, I said, uh, performing, uh, not, not for me. me. Not for me. <laughs> so you, you finished up college, and then did you come right back to New York? I came back to New York and did uh, two years of graduate work at Columbia University. Oh, in, in music? In music, yes. Mm -hmm. By then, I was, I was really committed to music. Yeah, at that point. And uh, I, so I did, I did the master's program. But I didn't uh, get my the didn't do my thesis because the thesis required that you write a uh, major orchestral work, a big orchestral oh. Oh. work, and uh, I said to myself, "Well, why do I? I'm a songwriter. Why should I? First of all, it's very hard to do. Second of all, who's going to play it? Nobody's going to play this. Who's going to copy it? Even the copying of a yeah. you know of a." In those days, it was like Handwriting, with yeah, ink. no, it takes yeah. a lot of time, yeah. So, um, so I decided I didn't really need a, a degree. Um, but I got a lot of musical training, though. Were your parents supportive of you going into music? Oh, yeah, yeah very much so. Okay. Yeah. Wait, what did your mom and dad do? My father was uh, a liquor salesman. He was the general manager of J&B Scotch. Oh. Nice. And That's a pretty uh, good job. And uh, my mother was, was a very active community leader and uh, uh, worked for schools. And they were very active. But I come from a kind of this middle-class Jewish background where culture was everything. Mm -hmm. They didn't care about sports. They didn't care. They wanted you to do art. My brother was, was, was a painter and art, art dealer. And uh, we were culturally... Uh, that's where we were pushed. Yeah, that's great. That's great that yeah, family so, so supportive yes. like that. Were you an only child? No, I have a. I had a brother. You had I a brother. You had a brother. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then, um, who do you think was the most influential to you as a writer? Like, who was it? Was it a lot of Cole Porter in your head? Was it Johnny Mercer in your head? Was it Harold Arlen? Who Who did you see yourself trying to model yourself after, or who was inspiring you? Maybe not modeling. Yeah. Um, well. The the people who inspired me the most the most is, is George Gershwin. Mm. Uh, I mean, to me, he, he's head and shoulders above everybody. And if people ask me what my favorite show is, it's Porgy and Bess. Yeah. Uh, you know, everything else is on another level. Not that there aren't great shows. Yeah. So um, I love the Gershwins, and uh, I, I love I love Cole Porter, uh, the sophistication and the humor. Um, and uh, you mentioned Johnny Mercer, um, and I had great, the great good fortune of having him as a mentor. D tell how us about that. This. Yeah, how did yeah, that come this about? This is what we're so fascinated by. Well, when I say mentor, in those days, there was no such thing as a mentor. Yeah. It was just somebody helping you out, an older person. Right. Um, you know, th that kind of relationship is that evolved later. How did you contact? Uh, he contacted you? You he contacted him? He was a friend him? of uh, my then wife's family. Okay. Um, uh, my, my then wife's father was a man named High Craft, who was a playwright, and had written a show called Top Banana. Oh, my God, uh, yeah. With Phil Silver. Yeah. It was about burlesque. And yeah. Johnny Mercer wrote... 
the music and lyrics. Right. If you want to be a top banana, you got to start at the bottom of the bunch. <laughs> I know that cast recording, yes. We, we, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, he was a friend of the family, and uh, so uh, we, we were invited to his house. They lived in, in California, and my wife was from L.A., so I spent a lot of time there, and, and he took an interest in me, and I played him some of my early efforts, and he made some comments. And was it intimidating to sit down at a piano with Johnny Mercer sitting there watching? He you? was so affable mm. uh, that I, no, it wasn't. Okay, um, he, he's a really he had that southern charm, that kind of grace, and he'd talk. Walter, he'd say, you know, <laughs> I like that, but you know, maybe I ought to think about this. Um, very, very gentle, uh, never boastful, huh. and. Um, um, he he um, he didn't teach me anything. I mean, he just uh, we talk about theater a lot, or think of uh, not theater, but, but about lyrics yeah. a lot. Yeah. And uh, he was a craftsman, and um, I, have, I had this one memory of of riding back one day from Newport Beach, which is where his house. We were in his sports car, and and. Um, coming up the, the 405, and um, the radio was on. And suddenly, Lena Horne came on mm. uh, singing uh, Blues in the Night. My mama done told me. And he winced, and he turned it off. And I said, Johnny, wh why'd you turn it off? He said, I, I can't listen to that song. I said, why not? He said, I wrote a line that goes, hear that lonesome whistle going across the trestle, hooey. I said, yeah. He said, whistle and trestle don't rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked myself, why did I do that? <sighs> That's great. So, um, yeah, actually, I wrote that. There was an article in the New York Times about false rhymes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I wrote a little... That that story which they printed. Oh, that's um, great! And I still um, false rhymes are something that I still avoid. I was brought up to rhyme correctly. Exactly. Uh, and you know, since since the Beatles, um, it's it's not considered an issue. Yeah. And um, and I have no quarrel with it. Um, but, but that's how you, I was. Yeah. But that's basically how I try to write. Wow. What what is the greatest thing you think Johnny Mercer ever taught you? If you had to distill it into one lesson. Write the way people talk. Uh, the rhythms, uh, the way, uh, always try to follow the rhythms of, of speech, mm -hmm. um, which actually reminds me of an issue that I had with Steve Lawrence on I've Gotta Be Me. Mm. Um, we were in rehearsal, and uh, he sang, I hope I can get this right, he sang... Uh, I've got to be me, I've got to be me. What else can I be but what I am? Which is how it goes. Mm -hmm. I wrote, what else can I be but what I am? I went up mm -hmm. on am. And I said, Steve, no, that's not down, it's up. He said, why is it up? I said, because it's a question. And at the end of a question, what else can I be but what I am? You, you, what I am. You, you, up, yeah. you don't go down on, on a question. 
I, I, I wasn't consciously thinking of it, but that's what Johnny right. taught me. So uh, he nodded and said, yeah, I, I understand. Of course, he ignored me. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it, and, kids. Yeah, just I mean, like he was that. one of the biggest singers on, you know, <laughs> in, in the country he and better. did it just the way he wanted to. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> I, I really can't argue that, that it... Uh, that it hurt the song, right? But still, um, does Sammy but, go up? <laughs> does but, Sammy uh, go up? But it's still, but it's still in my head when I hear it. Yeah, I still, I always go, oh, no. <laughs> um, but such is life. It's one of the quirks. Yeah. Let's imagine someone has never heard of Johnny Mercer, and you have to give them one song, and you say that's Johnny Mercer. What song would it be? Uh, gosh, there are so many. Uh, I think Moon River. Mm. Uh, the Days of Wine and Roses, uh, Accentuate the Positive, yeah. uh, Blues in the Night. Uh, I could go on and on. Yeah. I mean, it's... Um, but uh, I had a, uh, an interesting conversation with him at um, one point. Uh, he said, you know, he, he, was, he had a good ego. He wasn't, you know, wasn't right. um, shy about his success and he said you know with all my success and it's been substantial my only regret is that I've never had a really big show I mean a show like uh, South Pacific um, uh, The King and I uh, My Fair Lady um, the, and, and it was true he, he, he didn't his biggest show was Lil Abner which yeah. wasn't you know, a mild success, but his other shows like a blue, uh, like uh, St. Louis Woman was right. a disaster. Saratoga. Oh yeah. Um, um, and I said, well, I think that's really that's really strange because your songs are character songs. I mean, uh, uh, many of them are, are are a person singing about a personal thing, so you would seem to be a natural for the theater. And he said, well, I feel the same way. I mean, and I think my craft is, and he said this, he said, I think I'm up there with Oscar Hammerstein and Ira Gershwin, but um, so far it's never happened to me. And I said, well, I got, here's, here's an idea for a show, John. I said, Kurt goes up, there's a neon sign that says Joe's Bar. The guy's at the bartender's polishing glasses. A guy walks into the bar, orders a beer, looks at his watch and sings, it's quarter to three. Hmm. There's no one in the place except you and me. So set him up, Joe. I got a little story you ought to know. I said, and then the, so the show is the story of lost love or whatever, yeah. uh, uh, wherever you want to go. But right. it, that can, that's about as theatrical as you can be. Yeah. And he said, yeah, that's, that's a great idea. Well, they did, nothing proceeded from that. And 50 years later, I was telling that story to uh, a, one of my publishers at Warner Chapel Music, who was Johnny Mercer's publisher. And I told him that story just out of love. And he said, well, why don't you write it? I said, right. What? I said, well, write a show using all the songs that are dramatic yeah. and write a story ab about it. I said, well, what about the rights to this music? He said, well, we have most of the rights to the Johnny Mercer catalog. So, uh, so I did it. 
And then I played it for Rob Schneider. Yes. Oh, it's great. It's really... He, Does that accentuate the positive? Uh, no. My Shining Hour. My Shining Hour. My Shining Hour, yeah. yeah. It, it, it started out... Uh, we did it at uh, 54 Below, uh, and it was very well received, and it looks like it has a promising future. It was originally called Accentuate the Positive, but um, uh, I changed the title because it's not... Because that sounds a little frivolous. It does. And the show yeah. is, is, is not... Uh, it has to do with some serious issues. And there's this wonderful song called My Shining Hour, which is not as well known, but um, it's just a glorious song. Um, I, mean, I, I remember that, that, um, that Johnny, Johnny played it for me, um, and I, I had loved the song, and uh, Johnny said that when, when we finished it, Harold Arlen said to me, this song is as close as we're ever going to be to Jerome Kern, wow. um, which it is. It's kind yeah. of like you would think, oh, you wouldn't think more Harold Arlen. You would think more Jerome Kern right, right, and right. that kind of sweep that. Right, the melody. and Yeah. So um, it's, a, it's a really good show. We did, we did a reading of it actually here at, at Shetler Studios. And you know how most readings go where you, you, you do it and then people go, oh, that was nice. Or, you know, that's got it. But then, the reception was really overwhelmingly positive. People were like, you could take this and open it now. Um, it's a really, really fantastic show, but Walter's done a really beautiful job of crafting um, a really strong story about the horrors of war and about mm -hmm. America in the 1940s um, with it. It's really, really good. Um, how are you supporting yourself as a musician in New York in the, in the, uh, the 50s? In, in those days? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, in those days, there was uh, something called industrial shows. Yes, oh, we Kevin love did. talking about industrial shows. Um, bathtubs over Broadway. Yeah. Walter is mentioned in I the know. documentary. I love yeah. that documentary. It's a fantastic documentary. Yes, and Michael uh, Brown, who, who just did a tribute to at 54 Below, yeah. uh, was, was, was one of the right. best at that. Um, and I, I, um, the reason I, I got into it was that I got a telephone call from Sheldon Harnick, oh. who had been my uh, roommate at a place called Green Mansions, one of those resorts. Yes, you know, in the Catskills. In the yeah, and we 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 roomed together. Uh, he was older than I, and uh, more, much more accomplished, but not much more. Right. Uh, in fact, one night he said to me, "You know, there's one thing I know about this business." I said, "What's that?" He said, "I will never make a dime." Oh. <laughs> he said that. <laughs> So, um, uh, a number of years later, uh, he called me up and he said, uh, Jerry Bach and I have just signed to do Fiorello with Hal Prince. Mm -hmm. And Hal Prince says, that's all you can do. I don't want you to doing any industrial shows, any, because they had been writing them. Yeah. Well, yeah. He said, so we, we, we have the Buick show, but I can't do it. He won't let us do it. Would you like to do it? I said, well, I don't know what it is. <laughs> I said, well, the pay's pretty good. I said, I'll, I'll do it. So he said, well, go see the, the producer and uh, talk to him about it. So uh, I said, who's the producer? And he said, Biff Liff, who Biff Liff became Legendary. Uh, a big agent at yeah. William Morris. Uh, but at the time, he was producing industrial shows. And uh, so I went up to see him, and he told me about the show and what it involved was parody lyrics. Uh, it wasn't original music, uh, 
and um, he gave me uh, the advertising material. These, these shows, as you know, were to introduce new cars and new products mm -hmm. at big conventions. Right, right. Um, so I went home, and um, it was real easy. I mean, like I did it. I did three songs, like one in an hour. <laughs> I mean, it was, oh, this is... This is right. <laughs> I got all the material to write. I, I don't have to make a tune. Right, make a rhyme. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, I came, that was a Friday. I came in on Monday and uh, played the songs, and he said, you got the job. Um, so uh, that was my introduction. And for the next uh, probably four or five years, I did probably five a year. My oh, my God. So there were a lot. It seems like there was a lot of work out there, there was for a lot, the yeah. industrial I mean, work. There was a Nabisco. There was Milliken. There was uh, a Chrysler Plymouth. Uh, I did an Audi show. Uh, I did uh, Studebaker. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. You've got performability with Studebaker Lark. <laughs> I wrote that. That's my music. <laughs> that's, that's the uh, crowning achievement. Yeah, that's fantastic. So uh, yeah, so that that was a lot of fun, and uh, I was single then, and there were a lot of girls. Oh yes, so that helps. There were a lot of dancers <laughs> in these shows, and uh, so I had a little perks. Good yes, for you. And, so good for you. and did you meet other industry people? I mean, was this how you met other writers or other directors or, uh, you know, people that might help you outside of the industry business? You know, did this establish not, not, contacts? Not really, because okay. I was dealing with, with the corporate ah. adver and advertising guys. So it was just a little niche. But, you know, it, it, um, it made me very comfortable. I wasn't getting rich, but I was e living very relaxed and able then to write uh, shows on spec and and, and get them around to people. I was meeting people. Um, uh, it was a lot easier in those days than it is now. I mean, first of all, shows didn't cost $8 million, $10 million. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there were a lot. If you look at the ABCs in those days, there was like, you know, 15, 20 musicals on. Oh, yeah. Now, okay, so how did you get involved with Flower Drum Song? Uh, one of the guys that uh, I met, uh, was Jimmy Hammerstein, who was Oscar's uh, son. Yeah. And uh, I, I think he was a friend of my wife, uh, well, that, that same wife, uh, initially. And uh, so we became friends. And uh, Jimmy was a stage manager. And uh, so uh, he was the stage manager of Flower Drum Song. So he said, how would you like to uh, be my... Aki's assistant, his father was called a Aki, uh, um, instead of Oscar Hammerstein. I didn't know that. Wow. Never knew yeah. that. Um, so if you want to be Aki's gopher, uh, you can come on the, sh you know, go to rehearsal, uh, come out of town with us, um, and just watch what's going on, and they'll send you for coffee, which is basically I just sat in the uh, right. rehearsal hall in the, uh, in the audience out of town, and uh, went for coffee, but I just took in. Uh, it was like a sponge, and uh, they were very nice to me. Uh, Oscar Hammerstein was was extremely kind, and so so was Richard Rogers. Um, that brings up a kind of, a kind of wonderful story about flower drum song Please. in rehearsal, which I think you might be yes. interested in. Uh, I was sitting in the audience, and up on the stage, um, there were they were. The, the choreographer was Carol Haney. 
Oh, yeah. And she was staging a soft shoe number uh, with, with um, Miyoshi Yumeki and Larry Blyden. They were uh, two people in the show. And uh, she was having trouble with it. I mean, you know, the, she couldn't get anything really going. The, the, all the other dancers were sitting against the back row, uh, against the back wall, watching all this stuff. And uh, she came, yelled out at the audience, hey, Gene, I can't do this. Can you give us a hand? He was talk she was talking to Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly was the director of Flower Drum Songs, not really that well-known. I forget that, yeah. So, so Gene came up on the stage. This is six, uh, 59, I think. So he came up on stage, and he'd been to, he was the director, and he was around doing things, and, uh, but he didn't have much to do with the dancers because it was choreography. So he, he came up, and he said, well, I think you should do something like this. And he started to do a soft shoe, and it was Gene Kelly. Yeah. It was Gene Kelly. I mean, you knew instantly, and every kid in the chorus from the back, all these dancers were going, it's Gene Kelly. <laughs> I mean, they, they knew it was Gene Kelly, but he it was the same Gene Kelly from the MGM musicals. I mean, he was getting old, and he's losing his hair. He didn't look so great. But that magical moment... I think every, I, I met a dan one of the dancers years later, and I said, do you remember that? that? And she said, how can I forget? Yeah. Wow. So uh, that, that was, um, I was very fortunate to, to share in that. And, and, a, few, and a, a year later, uh, I was in this, um, my show Bajour was in the same theater, the <laughs> Schubert Theater. Oh, my goodness. Um, so, so how does Bajour come to you? Is it your idea? Does someone come to you and say, we'd like you to write the music? Um, it was not my idea. It was uh, the, the idea of Ed Padula, who was the uh, producer. And um, it was just uh, he, um, my agent at the time, I had a small agent, I don't even remember who it was, but she contacted him and and, uh, and uh, so I had a meeting with him and he told me what the story was based on some uh, some stories in the New Yorker by mm -hmm. Joseph Mitchell about gypsies uh, who were at that time there were gypsies living in empty stores in in New York and 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 being <laughs> pulling off bajours, which is means uh, a grift, a, a con jobs. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so he told me what the story was, and he said, "Could you could you write a couple of songs so that." On spec, I went home and wrote a couple songs and played them for him, and that's how I got the job. <laughs> now, um, one of the most famous songs from Bajor is Where Is the Tribe for Me, which when people talk about uh, I want songs, this usually, as, as, as definitions of fantastic I want songs, this is usually one of the songs that pops up on the list, um, but it's filled with animal noises, mm -hmm. animal noises. Who's, whose idea was this to, to put in so many animal sounds <laughs> or animal impressions I should well um, I, I wrote the song without the animal sounds and uh, it, it worked very well I mean it, everybody liked it and, uh, but I thought it should be funnier and it should be a little, a little kinkier and 
this is really curious because I, I had done a song for the Milliken show with animal sound. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute, that will look really great in an industrial show. Yeah. I'm going to stick it in the middle of this song. Uh, and that's what I did. And it, uh, and it was fun because I had to do all... In those days, you did the backers auditions for theater party ladies. Oh, what, what, what were theater party, party ladies, for those of us who don't know? Uh, she, theater, the power well, that the theater party ladies had. <laughs> well, uh, they, were, uh, they were mostly J- Jewish groups of women who, who attended matinees. Mm-hmm. And they would, uh, they would uh, sell the entire theater out to women. Wow. Um, so when you... When a show was coming on, the theater party, the ladies who ran these organizations would come, and if they liked it, you knew that you'd be selling out X amount of shows. So it became really important factors. Um, So uh, you had to kind of sell them. Wine and dine them a little bit. Yeah, Yeah. wine and dine them, yeah. So you you had to play the show yourself. It would just be you at a piano singing all the songs. Uh, yes, I, I used to play and sing all the songs. Together. I always had, I always had a woman singer because I couldn't do everything uh, myself. And I had, I, I hope I can remember uh, this group because they were quite unusual. There were four of in the backers auditions. There were four women who helped me. The first was a woman called Sheila Sullivan, who was was in uh, A Joyful Noise and a few other Broadway shows. And she was a great singer. And she later married Robert Culp. Oh, okay. That's that's the first person. The second person was a woman called Sherry Malineau, who later married Mickey Spillane. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And, oh, there's only three. Good husbands here. And the third one was... um, Louise Lasser. Oh, my gosh. Who was actually the best singer of all of them. Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Yes. And she married Woody Allen. Allen. Right. So what an incredible uh, list of people. (laughs) So Bajor goes on. Who else is in the cast of Bajor? Who's in the cast? This is a pretty good cast. Oh, that's really gutsy. Uh, Cheetah Rivera, Nancy Mm. Dusso. Who else? Herb Edelman. Herb Edelman. uh, Paul Sorvino. Oh, Paul Sorvino. Was in the chorus. Jeez. In the chorus. <laughs> in the chorus. Um, and I would say probably of in the chorus, there was a, a guy who was definitely the best dancer. I mean, he, he was very quiet. He never said much. But when, when the dancing was on, this kid was like as clean a dancer as you ever could ever conceive of. His name was Michael Bennett. Oh, wow. Peter Gennaro was the choreographer. Uh-huh. But Michael started out in, in our chorus, huh. and we became friends. Did uh, you really? Yes, yeah. yes. Good guy? Very good guy. I liked him very much. Yeah. Very creative. Did you ever get to work on anything with him after Bajor? I did. I, I did a, uh, 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 a musical version of Pinocchio. Oh, on TV. Oh, yeah. On TV. That's right. Uh, I think it was Hallmark Hall of Fame. Yes. Uh, and 
I got him the job as, as choreographer. Wow. Oh. And then I got Marvin Hanlis' job as dance arranger. <laughs> so I was helping Well, you were like, should have been an agent. <laughs> I was going to say, you should have been an agent. My God. Hey, podcast listeners. Are you looking for a place to rehearse in New York City that is clean, spacious, and most importantly, affordable? Come check out Shetler Studios and Theaters, our wonderful host for these podcasts. Shetler is centrally located on West 54th Street between Broadway and 8th Avenue, right in the heart of the theater district. Right in the heart, you'll find music, dance, and acting studios, complemented by two black box theaters and six presentation venues. The professional facilities, inspired environment, and expert industry staff combined to provide the New York artist with an unparalleled studio experience. Visit their website at shetlerstudios.com. That's S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. Shetler Studios and Theaters is our home for recording the legends of Broadway, and we hope that you make it your artistic home, too. That's Shetler, S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. See you here. Now, how long does Bajor run? Uh, six months. Six months, okay. Mm-hmm. But it's, it doesn't do so well, correct? Is that right? Uh, it did okay. It did okay, I mean, okay. It, it was, um, I would say it was medium. Did me, it it's got a, mixed, mixed mm-hmm. reviews. It's a, you know, it's a great score, and it's a cult classic now. People listen to it all the time. People love, love, love it. Um, is it fun to keep revisiting these shows every once in a while, these things that you did years and years ago, and they suddenly keep coming back into your orbit? Do you enjoy going back and revisiting? Not really. No, I'm, I'm kind You're of a, a forward-looking person. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I enjoyed the Golden Rainbow for the reasons that we yeah. said. Uh, Bajor wouldn't work today because Gypsies, yeah. right. uh, it's a minority and yes. it's all you know, stated. Right. Yeah. yeah, but a fun <laughs> listen. A fun yeah, listen. Yeah, if fun you haven't score, listened indeed. to it, I encourage everybody to yeah. go and listen to it. Um, so then what did you do? So you did Bajor, and then you had Golden Rainbow a couple of years later. Mm-hmm. In that interim period, were you working on any other shows or, or, or trying to percolate any other ideas? Uh, yes. Uh, people ask me that all the time, and uh, it's a hard question to answer because the, the, the fact is that I was always writing shows, yeah. always working on projects. And for... For various reasons, uh, they didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they'd get to a certain point or they'd get to another point, and then either the money would fall apart or the star wouldn't do it. Um, but it, it never deterred me. I mean, uh, and I was developing and, and, and working. And uh, also, um, I was doing other things. I, I did a film called The Wild Party. Yes. Uh, Merchant, for, I- uh, for Merchant Mer- Ivory, right? Merchant mm-hmm. Ivory, yeah. uh, yes, which was... Uh, a musical. I mean, it had uh, about six songs in it, and I wrote the screenplay as well. Oh By then, I was getting into writing text as well. Yeah. So uh, I was exploring all kinds of things, and and uh, uh, my brother, uh, who, who was an art dealer, uh, we were very close, and uh, after the wild party, uh, we decided to write some things together. Oh, wow. So we wrote... Uh, a couple of screenplays and um, and a play, um, and um, we some of the stuff was done in stock. We wrote a play off Broadway called "The Butler Did It," mm-hmm. oh, which yes. is a which is a kind of comedy thriller mm-hmm. done in high mm-hmm. schools all over the country. Still. Yeah, I, yeah, really, it's done a lot. Yeah. Um, so 
I was doing that. You know, someone you got to, to work with for a little bit, and somebody who I really admire is Larry Gelbart, a uh, great comedy writer, great director. How did, you, how did you connect with him? I knew him, as they say, from around. Yeah. Uh, I knew him in New York. I knew him in California as, as a friend. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a show called um, uh, City of Angels, mm-hmm. uh, which you probably yes. call Cy Coleman, a book by Larry Galbar. Yeah. And so my, uh, I was hired to do the lyrics uh, with Cy Coleman and Larry, who was, was a friend. Uh, and also, by then I was starting to write mystery books, so they knew that I knew the genre of, right. of noir crime, which is basically what it's private mm-hmm. detective. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I worked on that for about six months. I'd go out with Larry and help him with the book. Um, oh, interesting, great story about Larry. Um, he, uh, we were talking about the plot of the... Oh, it's a mystery, mm-hmm. a, a crime mystery, and he he had trouble with that. And he said, you know, uh, he, he was very self-effacing. He said, you know, he says, I know I can write jokes and I know I can write character, but I really have trouble with plot. I've always <laughs> had problems with plot. Um, so I said, well, I can really, I, that's what I'm good at. Mm-hmm. So um, when when he died, his his gravestone says, finally, a plot. <laughs> Talk about self-effacing. Isn't yeah. that great? It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, only I get it. I yeah, guess, right. But, <laughs> but um, anyway, um, so I was work, and I, and then I would come to New York and work on songs with Cy Coleman. And uh, I, there was one, one time we were working together and, and he, he wrote some music, and I said, "Sigh, I don't think that's th- I don't think that's right." I was fired the next day. <laughs> oh, interesting. No ego. No wow. ego. Uh, well, you know, being a composer, I, I felt yeah, that of I, course. I, you know, yeah. I knew music well, and uh, I, I said it very gently. I didn't say yeah. that sucks. You know, yeah. I said, "Well, I think you know the phrasing is whatever it was." That's collaboration. Anyway, yeah. Um, so. Uh, it's the only time in my life I've been fired for, from anything. Fuck them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Who needs them? But, you know, they gave me a little bit of the royalties. It worked out okay. But, but anyway, um, then, um, I, um, then I, uh, I got this idea to work on a show about Lenny Bruce, mm-hmm. uh, which is called Dig Lenny Bruce. Mm-hmm. I wrote the, the, the book, music, and lyrics. And um, so I sent it to Larry Gilbart. Uh, to ask him to read it and, you know, punch it up or tell me what he thought. And uh, he wrote back, he said, he said, you know, this score is so magnificent. He said, I want to, I want to write the book. I was really surprised. He said, I'm very busy, but I'd love to work with you. So uh, it, was, it was a great gift. So um, I worked on it. It with him for about a year, and and then unfortunately he died. Oh, uh, so um, I I have uh, revised it somewhat, carrying on, uh, but I haven't brought it to the point where 
it's completed yet, mm -hmm. but it's one of my projects in my back pocket. That's it. fantastic. That's real. I, I, I'm looking forward to, to. You'll be the first. To oh, see good. It. Okay, good. <laughs> going back a little, it, there was another Broadway show that I don't know much about, and I'm hoping you could tell me a little bit about it. Um, the Broadway Follies, which was in 1981. What what was that? It seemed like there was it was a big a big show. Yes. I mean, was. there was a big cast in it. What mm -hmm. was that? Uh, it was a show. Um, the idea was to do a Broadway version of vaudeville. Right, like Ziegfeld and, yeah. Take a, uh, it was like a Follies. Yeah. Uh, and they got various nightclub acts. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and it was produced by uh, Edgar Lansbury yeah, and right. Joe Baru, who had produced The Wild Party. Mm -hmm. And so they hired me to write the songs. And uh, it was quite interesting because we, we all had to go to Europe and and go to these various clubs and circuses and places to find talent and uh, assembled it into this show. And I wrote, I think, six songs. It wasn't really a musical because... Uh, yeah, more of a spectacle, yeah. Uh, and uh, it was a family show. And when it opened, uh, I remember the opening very well because uh, it was very well received and... Uh, in the intermission, uh, the general manager uh, came down and said, just got a review from the New York Star-Ledger. And it says, great family entertainment, you know, great fun for all. Everybody should go. And I thought, wow. This is it. <laughs> this yeah. is it. It bombed oh. so badly that it closed that night. Oh, my God. It opened and closed in the same night. The reviews were so terrible that uh, it closed. I mean, there was a, I got to the theater, there's no saying, no show. So, uh, I'm sorry. The, those are okay. the big hey, That's showbiz. Yeah, it yeah. is right there. So, now, yeah. when did you transition to being a novelist? Mm -hmm. um, I guess about 15 years ago. Um, uh, first of all, I, I, I love crime and detective fiction, yeah. so I've been reading it. And, uh, but not it, I wasn't avid, as avid about it as my wife. My wife always had a mystery, and had a face in a mystery book. She knew all, all of them. And our, our, uh, our study looks like uh, Barnes & Noble <laughs> used to. It's got all these hardcover books. And uh, she has an encyclopedic knowledge of crime and mystery fiction. Uh -huh. And um, and I've been telling her for, she's a she's a, a, a she was a, was a, a, a writer in, in Hollywood. She wrote Designing Women oh. and uh, Love Boats and yeah, things like not that. Not bad. Yeah. And then moved to New York and she's a teacher now at the School of Visual Arts. Uh -huh. And I kept saying, Joan, you should write one of these. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is. She said, I I, I can't think of a story. <laughs> I said, well, I mean, come on. She said, I said, well, look, if I can think of a plot, uh, I'll, I'll, would you write it if, if I give you the plot? Can you write it? She said, yeah, I guess so. So one, one night, one day on the plane coming back from Chicago, I remember this, I, was, I thought of a plot. And so when I got up, I said, honey, I got it. I got the plot. Here's the story. So I tell her the story. She says, that's great. I said, well, so now you can write it? She said, no, I can't write it. You write it. 
said, me, I can't write it. I don't know how to write a novel. She said, look, I'll give you five books. You'll read the books, and you'll see what, what the books right. are. So she gave me the Michael Connolly and, and uh, DeMille and various other. So I read the five books, and I said, oh, I, I, get, I see what this is. I said, this is, most of these books are really like movies. I mean, they're very visual. You kind of can see them. Um, so I said, well, I, I get it, but, you know, I still, I mean, God, it's 250 pages or whatever. Is, how am I going to do it? She yeah. said, well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what I tell my students when they come to me with an idea. I say to them, well, can you write one scene? Just write one scene. And so they said, well, it's one scene. I can write one scene. So she said to me, write one chapter. Can you write one chapter? So I'm, yeah, I said, yeah. One, I mean, you know, it's not, I'm, not, I'm not committing myself. So I wrote one chapter, and I showed it to her, and she said, yeah, well, this is pretty much <laughs> what it is. She said, so go ahead and just do it, you know. So I felt encouraged, and she, she's a great editor. So, um, so I, I, wrote, I wrote my first book. And, um, and it was called? It was called Get Dangerous Behavior. And uh, it was sold to Scott Rudin at Paramount, <laughs> to my great surprise. That's incredible. For an unconscionable amount of money. Insane. <laughs> so that got me started. And then, and then I, uh, we have a place in East Hampton. So I thought uh, I had an idea for uh, an East Hampton detective. Yes. Uh, who I named Detective Jericho. Hmm. And he's a burned out New York homicide cop who decides to move out to East Hampton because it's calmer and yes. peaceful. And, it, of course, it's not. <laughs> so it's, it's a great series. Any book that's come out from that, I've read. It's really yeah, good. Yeah. It's, it's on Amazon. That's and, so cool. Uh, so, um, so I started doing that, and uh, one of the reasons that I kept doing it is that Everything you do in musical theater, as I've been saying, takes forever. Yeah. And you, you never know what's going to happen or when it's going to happen. So I got to a point where I had a number of projects backed up that were in various stages of development. And I was kind of thought, oh, I can't write another show that's going to be in the trunk, you know. So I said, but I can't sit around. So, that, so uh, idle hands are the devil's workshop. So that's sort of, so now every day, you know, whatever I do, I put in a few hours on my fiction writing. And, that's great. You know, I certainly have improved because uh, you keep of doing course, it. Of course, of course. Get the, get the rhythm. And, and my wife's a very good editor, so I always show it to her first. And then I show it to my regular book editor. And You know, you're in all of these mediums, you know, writing music, you know, writing a book, writing screenplay. Is there any that is your favorite? Is there is is musical theater your favorite or is is there a favorite that you prefer? Do you just like creating? I know that you you just you're not idle. Well, my heart's in music. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Music's my first love. That's uh, and and I love being in in a recording studio Mm. uh, because. In the old days, you'd sit at the piano and play for the theater party ladies. Yeah. Um, now it's demos, mm-hmm. and uh, which I really like better because I'm not limited by my own voice. Mm. I, I can hire the singers that are right. I can hear their voices. Yeah. I can even write on people's voices, and I can orchestrate. So I bring in my my MIDI charts. Uh, and, and, and make demos that sound like cast albums. 
So uh, I've loved doing that. So, yeah, if I had my choice, I'd, I'd be doing music all of the course. time. Of uh, course. Now, you're still, you've still got so many things in the fire, like you just said. Tell me about Langston and Harlem. Well, that's my kind of, I guess you would call it my passion project. Uh, it's the thing that I care about most. Um, and uh, I've been working at it quite a long time. Uh, I, I guess it was, what started was that I went to see a, a revival of Raisin in the Sun. Mm. And uh, then recall that that's a line from a Langston Hughes poem called Harlem, which goes, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? I won't do the whole poem, but. Uh, um, so I said, oh, I, I, I'd like to read some of Langston Hughes' other poems. I, well, I knew about them, but I wasn't really familiar. So I got a book of Langston Hughes poetry, and I started to read them. And not only were they wonderful, but they rhymed. And rhyme poetry was kind of out of fashion yeah. uh, at that time. It was T.S. Eliot. And so uh, I thought, you know, this, these could be songs. And so I, just for fun, I sort of sat down and said, uh, it was a song called Weary Blues. I got the weary blues and I can't be satisfied. So I, I, and I started to hear what Langston must have heard in his, in his ear, because the songs, the, when I would, when I go in front of them, the music would come to me. It was a really odd experience, and um, I thought th this would really be could make could make a show, and so I thought, well, I'm, nobody's going to let me write the music. I'm going to I'm going to try to get a lot of black composers to. Uh, and I'll just yeah. supervise it yeah. or something. So I talked to my lawyer, and he said, oh, you're not going to get these people. They're not going to do it. Why don't you try it yourself? I said, well, all right. I'll, uh, um, again, it's all, I mean, the, the, the fortunate part that I've had is that uh, although I'm not wealthy, I have enough money uh, that I'm comfortable, and right. I can do what, I, what gives me joy. Uh, and... I said, this is really give me joy. I don't know if anything will happen with it. So um, I, I, did, I did it um, and did several workshops of it and finally got a production at uh, Off-Broadway at Urban Stages. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which got the most incredible reviews, particularly for the score. Mm. Um, r raves, except in the Times. <laughs> Some woman who has never reviewed another show, and I've never even heard of her, really dumped on it, uh, so, which kind of made its transition to Broadway almost impossible. Sure. Because everybody would say, well, the Times hated exactly. it. Exactly. So I got a, a Broadway producer picked it up, and he said, you know, we really need a new book. The score's fine. We need a new book. So I said, okay. So uh, he tried to get me a new book writer, uh, but literally, literally impossible because you can't write a book to a score. It, it's it's backwards. Yes. Uh, unless it's a jukebox musical, you can do it, right. but 
but th these songs are so specific mm -hmm. that to fit them into a dramatic context, nobody could get a handle on it. But in the process of doing that, I, um, I made a demo of, of, of the songs that I liked best to give to a playwright. Uh, and I made, instead of just stringing them together, I, I, I created a kind of dramatic arc so that it made some sense when you listen to it. It wasn't just everything out of the blue. It, it, I gave it a dramatic shape. And, um, the, uh, and when I listened to it, I said, you know, th this could be a concert. Actually, Langston Hughes' words speak for themselves. The poetry, the spoken poetry, doesn't really need a book. It could be, it, the models that I had for it were, were cats, which is poetry of T.S. Yeah. Eliot, there's no real story. And the dramatic, uh, the play that I modeled it after was uh, for Colored Girls, mm -hmm. which is also a, a series of, of vignettes yeah. of, of, of uh, women's stories. Both of them are very dramatically effective. and. So the, it's the staging that really makes them come alive. So I, I decided I was uh, to try, the, the producer wasn't interested, so that was fine. So I took it back and I created Langston in Harlem in concert, which is kind of the, the basis for what I hope will be, will expand into a staged version. And we're going to do that at 54 Below, oh, great. Uh, February 2nd, which is Langston's birthday and the beginning of Black History Month. Yeah. So, uh, and I have a, a director who is a, a man named Carl Cofield, who is the Associate Artistic Director of the Classical Theater of Harlem. Oh, great. And uh, he's wonderful. So we're in the process of putting that together. And uh, Classical Theater of Harlem uh, is in negotiations. This isn't set, and maybe I shouldn't say it, but it appears that there's a new th theater in Harlem called the Victoria. The Victoria is in a high rise, I think the tallest building in Harlem. Mm. It's next to the Apollo. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a super, uh, super uh, skyscraper. And they have put uh, two theaters in, in the bases, right. in, the, in, in, in the lobbies. Yeah. And it appears that classical theater of Harlem's new home is gonna be in the, in the Victoria. And, and since their director's directing Langston, um, we're hoping that it will be fit nicely. Langston yeah. in Harlem, in Harlem. That makes yeah. sense. <laughs> um, so that's where that stands that's now. Fantastic. That's great. Yeah, I look forward I'm, to that. I am so happy to know that you know, you're still doing so, so much in all these different mediums. You know, before we go, I have, one, I have one last question for you, which is you know, uh, to a lot of aspiring songwriters that are listening to this podcast, what piece of advice would you give them as they start their careers in, in writing for musical theater and writing songs in general? We all know how difficult it is, how daunting it is to, to think about uh, doing a show and, and getting it on. Uh, the conventional wisdom is you can't, it's almost impossible. And I always remember something that was said by the actress Ruth Gordon. Ruth Gordon, Probably not many people remember, but she was an actress in the in the 30s, um, a homely little Jewish girl from Brooklyn, uh, who uh, 
had a, a, almost no physical impact. And, but she was determined. And she married Garson Kanan, one of the great directors of the, the period. And somebody asked her what she thought the, the secret of her, her success was. And I guess this is what I would like to say to all young writers, so I say it to myself. Ruth Gordon said, never give up and never, ever, under any circumstances, face facts. <laughs> That's fantastic. I love that. Fantastic. I love that. Walter, this is, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so getting much. Getting to sit down with you today. You and are sharing so much. a wonderful human being and a brilliant artist. And uh, make sure, we'll, we'll post it, but make sure everyone goes to see Langston and Harlem at 54 Below and keep an eye out for all the other great stuff you're doing. Bye, Bye everyone. Today's episode was recorded at Shetler Studios on 244 West 54th Street. Visit Shetler Studios to book your room today, and you can be as cool as us. That's S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And friends, don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you guys can come in and help us out. Yes, in order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. The more ratings ratings, the more will come up in searches. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us one star and make us feel as bad as Annie did in that weird production in Boston where Annie dreamed about being adopted and then ended the show back in the orphanage. True story, Rob was there. I saw it. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. <laughs> Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.